Welcome to Ramdas Here and Now. I'm Raghu Marcus. And we're going to continue our uh, exploration uh, around uh, Ramdas's talk about sex and spirituality. There's some more great stuff uh, in this talk um, around that, you know, everyday uh, relationship that we have with with sex and, and that particular energy and how uh, it can be used as something that uh, allows us to go beyond the polarization and duality that is so prevalent, especially in this culture, uh, r- relative to coupling and to, s- to sex. And um, in this particular part of the talk, uh, I was really I was taken by some of the comments he made about the relationship to orgasm of orgasm to s- transcendence, because certainly that's one of the most basic ways in which all of us uh, experience um, a oneness at some point. I mean. Um, you know, much of our relationship with sex, especially in the West, is very polarized and very objectified and um, and certainly is mostly not a way in which we transcend our egos. Um, in fact, the other day I was talking to somebody about um, skepticism, actually, and we were talking about, well, when you... When you have uh, an experience with psychedelics, for instance, I mean, this was a powerful transformation tool for many of us and still remains that for many of us, where we actually experience the interconnectivity of everything, the harmony of it all, and something beyond uh, our normal perspective of senses, mind, ego, and we realize that there is another uh, vantage point. Uh, there is a, a, a real um, way to experience reality um, beyond uh, I, me, mine, should we say. And, you know, and when I started to talk about that, I, I started thinking about that, I was thinking, at the, you know, at the same time, one of the first ways we experience that very same thing is is the moment of orgasm. And we stop uh, especially obviously if there's if there's love involved and it's not completely lust um, so he talks here about the moment of orgasm you transcend your separateness that you know that moment when you merge and gee most all of us have had that moment and and that experience is uh, is is kind of a building block to um to uh, move in the direction where uh, you realize that there is a place where we can uh, be, we can become that which we experience through this orgasm. We can transcend. We can become one. We can see everybody from a different vantage point. For most people, as he says, it's the most direct route to a spiritually transcendent state. And People, uh, and you know, it talks about people with powerful minds resist that moment of transcendence. So the moment of orgasm is very brief because people are afraid of losing control. Um, what you learn to do in a lot of yoga forms is awakening the sexual energy, not to the point of orgasm, and here we're talking about tantra, and drawing the energy up the spine into the higher chakras, um, energy points. 
Um, and, and then we, we talk about Tantra. Um, and here it, 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 here's where it gets a little bit difficult. Uh, and Ramdas talks about this later in the, t- in the lecture. Um, I mean, you, you create a partnership and uh, that partnership, in, it's created in order to keep awakening that energy. As you keep awakening that energy, you draw it up into the crown chakras. If there is an orgasm at that point, that orgasm ex- is experienced over the head, not in the genitals. Now, that is the highest form of sexual tantra. Um, and that, as he says later in the talk, is a very, very difficult practice because, uh, you know, as uh, the predicament is with, with energy that's awakened in the first three chakras uh, is, you know, uh, survival, uh, sexual um, enjoyment, which, you know, allows the species, our species, to, you know, keep procreating. And then the third is power, is that in 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 all of those chakras, it you know people you're automatically treating people as objects, and uh, so it's very very difficult to um, to move out of that subject object place, and that's why in this culture and in the West, I mean this is something. Uh, that's a pretty common belief in, in these times. It's pretty difficult. Uh, but I do think that it's something to shoot for, that we can all shoot for it in, in, in relation to our, you know, the kind of partnerships that we set up. Um, you know, because when you do start to open through spiritual practices, through meeting a teacher, meeting your guru, meeting anybody who opens up our hearts in a way that, uh, you know, you, you feel the unity, um, and not just through an acid experience, not through just through orgasm, but through actual um, compassion and wisdom. And when you start to open, all chakras open. So compassion, so th- then you have a, a you know, a, a, a combination or a mixed a bag of compassion, sexuality, desire, but then there's some balance. So you 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 don't act in a way that creates suffering. I think this is very important, you know, for everybody because the more polarization that we create in any parts of our lives um, cr- that creates suffering, then of course, um, you know, this this is a continues the kind of karma that. Um, puts not just us, but everybody around us in, uh, you know, in a tight box and uh, very hard to get out of it. Only when you're in balance with uh, your upper chakras are you acting from the deeper harmony of life. So it's certainly, um, you know, very much something to aspire to. Um, When, you know, when to feed the uh, second chakra, so from a spiritual point of view, is is you know this this reiterates what what uh, we were just talking about because it it's using your energies in ways that diminish your potential one's potential liberation. They keep entrapping you. The more you feed a desire, the more you strengthen that desire system. 
The art is to keep moving the energy into higher and higher realms of compassion, wisdom, merging, unity, and have them express less and less through subject-object. And, but you can't do it through repression. It just boomerangs back and catches you. So, um, you know, he makes a big deal out of the fact that you know, by the end of the talk that, that it's very, in, in his experience, you know, and this is back then, I'm not quite sure, I think it was in the 90s this talk was given in England. Um, but I th- it's uh, absolutely even more relevant probably today that Tantra is very, very difficult um, you have to have complete, com- utterly complete, I would say, mastery over your mind and one-pointedness to be able not to get lost in, in, the, uh, in lust, period. Um, but I think these things are great to, to work towards, slowing down uh, the process that you have with your partner so that you're not overwhelmed by lust, you're not... Um, caught in subject object um and uh and and i love this part um of of the talk which uh, in fact um i've experienced directly with ramdas because about uh, uh 4 years ago ramdas married my lovely wife saraswati and i in, in a f- beautiful ceremony uh we were so fortunate that he agreed to do it, and uh, and the main part of it was his talk about creating a triangle. So that's the two partners, and the third part of the triangle is a shared awareness. And so you keep feeding everything. You know, of course, you have to have an agreement that this is w- one of the this is the main reason that you're together, is to feed these two points, you and your partner, into the third point, which is represents a shared awareness. And that, uh, you, and your, that shared awareness is playing with the energy that's created by the two polar points interacting, y- you know, yin and yang. So then from that, vantage point. I, I, I think it's really possible then to uh, to play with some of the uh, energies of sacred sex, the Tantra. You know, doing the Yabyum, you know, I'm sure you, everybody's uh, looked at a, you know, a, a Tantric book at one point in their life and sitting opposite each other and d- developing that one heart through eye contact and so on. Um, until there's one awares, w- awareness that that uh, that moves into that transcendent moment of sexual union. So I think it's 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 really. I think we can aspire to it. I don't think we have to get into a whole tantric practice as if that is our liberation possibility. I I don't think so. But I think consciously uh, using these practices um, is definitely. Um, away f- and and definitely using this triangle idea because it affects other parts of our partnership our marriage which w- whatever it may be um and and so he calls that that's the sacred part that whole idea of coming together two points coming with shared awareness and experiencing uh the sexual union 
That's the sacred part. The profane part is every time you settle for personal gratification using your partner. Now, again, very difficult. I mean, you know, uh, my own experience, it's been really in and out. I, I, uh, I have expired to this and not achieved it uh, in many, many, you know, over my lifetime. Um, and um, uh, I've been really fortunate in, in this partnership that I'm in now to have had, uh, you know, that blessing of being um, really hearing what it is to have that shared awareness between us. So it's, it's been pretty uh, magical. Um, well, let's just hear the whole talk from Ram Das. Uh, thanks, uh, everybody who's been listening, and thank you for uh, supporting us. Please do continue to support us at uh, ramdas.org. You can uh, support through a donation. We even have an Amazon.com link. We have all sorts of uh, different uh, films and uh, audios and meditations and chanting, all of which you can download and support us that way. So please continue. And here is the continuation of uh, Ram Dass's talk on sex and spirituality. And uh, on Ram Dass, here and now. If you start from pran or um, uh, just energy itself, then which way the energy gets directed <coughs> is, um, we talked about the chakras or centers yesterday um, in the body. And uh, as the energy gets directed in those ways, um, when it gets um, expressed through the second chakra, it's usually, it's experienced as sexual energy. Uh, <coughs> and when it's directed through the third chakra, it's experienced as ego power and mastery and control. And um, it's actually the same energy, it's just directed through a different form, and as it comes through that form, it, uh, it colors reality and starts to uh, affect the perception of what reality is about. Um, now, the fact that um, we are, uh, the way the species reproduces itself and works is that um, after that the energy first has to be in the first chakra because that has to do with survival and just continued existence. Once you are surviving and existing, then the next problem for the species is reproduction. So... Um, then that's why that's the second chakra and that is where the energy is available next. Uh, when you're falling off a mountain, you're usually not very sexually aroused. Uh, <coughs> and so it's only when your survival is assured that you start to experience uh, the possibility of uh, sexual um, arousal. The way the, um, in, at the instinctual level, it, it is, of course, directed towards reproduction. Um, but because the human mind is, um, starts to create realities around the energy, it starts to build um, thought forms that awaken that energy because the energy for us to reproduce, there is uh, uh, 
a lot of affective tone to that awakening of the energy, so there's a lot of pleasure. <coughs> and uh, in order to awaken that pleasure, we start to use our minds to increase it and to um, awaken that energy when the external stimulus that would awaken it isn't necessarily present. And um, as we get more and more uh, evolved in playing with our minds, we end up really having sex in our minds more than actually the way in which it's originally designed, which is just for reproduction. Um, Ramana Maharshi, who was a very great saint in India, looking at it from above, beyond, from spiritual point of view down, says, what is it when two bodies rub together? Uh, I mean, he really reduced it at that point to, you know, what big deal is it? And from his point of view, sex was only for reproduction. And all the rest of it was an aberrant behavior. We find that hard to um, handle because we built such incredible rituals around it. Because we, uh, the intensity of that, gra of that pleasure is so great. And that's, were it not that great, we wouldn't reproduce the species, actually. Uh, so it's quite functional. Now, what's interesting is the relation of orgasm to transcendence. Because at the moment of orgasm, you transcend your separateness. There's a moment when you merge. Uh, and that is, for most people, that is the most direct route to the spiritually transcendent state. And so that most people know through that experience what that's about. They know what it's talking about, about that moment of transcendence. And if you watch the way people who have very strong minds have sex, uh, are involved in sexuality, you will see that they resist that transcendent moment. They love it. They're drawn towards, but they're frightened by it, and they regain the control as quickly as they can immediately afterwards, so that the moment of orgasm gets extremely brief for somebody that's got a powerful mind. Uh, for people who are not as attached to their separateness, the state of orgasm gets longer and longer and longer, which is the state in which one is uh, not separate. But for most people that have strong third chakra power needs and mastering control needs, the loss of control in orgasm is both frightening and exhilarating for them. So uh, it's interesting that transcendence and reproduction should be as intimately linked. Uh, I mean, I think that's an exquisite design by whoever figured that one out, cause, uh, <coughs> uh, because that's such a, a, a powerful mix. Um, the, uh, but it is exactly the same energy. It's just, in a, it's just moving in a different place. And what you learn to do in a, in a lot of yogic forms uh, drawing, uh, awakening the sexual energy, not to the point of orgasm, just awakening that energy and then drawing the energy up the spine into the upper chakras. And in, in Tantra, which is uh, that concerned with that technique, you use uh, a partnership in order to keep awakening that energy. And as you keep awakening that energy, you draw it up and up into the up into here and here and here and here, uh, keep moving the energy up. And 
actually if there is an orgasm at that point, the orgasm is experienced over the head rather than in the genitals. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's just moving the energy. It's awakening the energy and then moving it, awakening it and moving it, awakening it and moving it. The, um, the predicament with energy that is awakened in the first three chakras is that it treats other people as objects. In survival, it's me versus you. In reproduction, in second chakra, it is, it is a desire that's awakened for pleasure, for gratification, which uses you to give me that gratification. That's what the issue of lust is. Lust is taking an object. It's seeing another being as an object for your gratification. In third chakra, it's power relationships or control or mastery over another person. It's only when you get up into the fourth chakra that there is a quality of us rather than me versus you or me as opposed to you or you as object in which the us is, starts to be us as subject. And so the question then is if you are in your fourth chakra, would you have sex if the energy is up here? Can you have sex with somebody that isn't an object? Can you have sex without lust? And I think most of you know that that is obviously possible. And then it is, the sex comes out of a karmic appropriateness rather than, it's not that every, I mean, as you open up more and more and you start to be in love with more and more people, more and more of them can be sexual uh, partners, uh, potentially. I mean, there's the openness, the flow of energy is going back and forth. And then who it is you actually would have sex with would be a function of the appropriateness of the karma. And uh, some people you say hello to, some you shake hands with, some you go to bed with, and some you'll produce children with. And you are quiet enough to listen to that and find the appropriateness of it. And uh, I notice that often, <coughs> I notice that as my heart is open more and more, I love people more and more. And when you love somebody very intensely and you feel that love flowing back and forth, many people interpret that in second chakra because that's where they're hearing it from. And they get to desire relationship, desire intimacy. And often I experience with somebody that, it has, that every relationship for me starts to have a sexual tone to it. It all, because when you're finally as you open more and more, all your chakras are open. It's not like you close the lower ones and open the upper ones. It ends up that they're all open all at once. So that it's compassion and desire and sexuality, but it's all in balance so that you then only act in a way that doesn't create suffering. And you begin to see that when you act out of first, second, and third chakra, ultimately you are creating suffering. When you act out of them exclusively. It's only when they are in balance with the upper chakras so that the actions are in the deeper harmony of things. And often I'll say to somebody, wouldn't it be nice for us to sleep together, but we can't afford it because we'll just create too much suffering with it because we will interpret it at the wrong level. We're just not, it's not appropriate for this situation. Well, that's the beginning for that question. Yes. Next. 
I'm going to do them all with dispatch today. Well, you've already answered this one, really. I think it's, um, it's about the Buddha, Buddha saying, you right sexual conduct, which I think you, unless you'd like to elaborate on that, what is right sexual conduct? And um, how often can we have it? <laughs> and how what? How often can we have it? <laughs> <laughs> what is right sexual conduct and how often can we have it? The Buddha said twice a week, uh, <laughs> and never on Sunday. <laughs> um, well, generally, we come back to the issue of what kind of karma you create. And when you look at the statement, and this is a delicate one for people, some people in this room even, thou shalt not commit adultery. Um, now, w what is the relation between that and, say, open marriages? Um, I think what, the way I hear it is you don't get so caught in your desire systems that you perform acts which create suffering in other people. And when you have a contract with another person and then you act with a third person without the release from that contract or without the knowledge. In other words, you react behind another person's back to perform a, a sexual behavior. You increase the paranoia in the world and you increase, there's a karma cost in that. You don't get away free from it. And when it's, it is designed to allow people to feel safe enough in relationship, trust through contract, to be able to open and to be able to be vulnerable, if you will. And when you misuse that contract, you are creating a world in which you can't trust. And when you create that world, you then have to live in it. So there is a cl clearly a karmic effect from misuse of human contracts in that way. So I think the sexual misconduct is primarily, um, in Buddhism, it refers to incest, it refers to somebody else's partner, it refers to um, just behaviors that create suffering um, because they rip the fabric of the structure that you need for a social structure to exist. That's roughly what we're talking about. Um, in terms of incest, there's probably some genetic reasons for it, but I mean, in terms of uh, adultery, there obviously isn't. Um, beyond that, I think that most, um, most spiritual people now have relaxed a lot about what are the no-nos in sexuality. I think that uh, everybody isn't drummed out of the core because of... Uh, masturbation, homosexuality, things like that. Um, I, I think that's all been... Nobody's... The, the idea is that to feed the second chakra from a spiritual point of view is really... Um, it's really using your energies in less than the way that they could liberate. They keep entrapping you in that the more you feed a desire, the more s you strengthen that desire system. And I noticed um, 
that when I got into, when I went to India or going to a Buddhist monastery, that the, that the amount of sexual fantasy and sexual energy almost disappears entirely in my life. And I think, well, isn't that interesting? Where did that go? It's not like I repress it. It's merely that the vibratory energy of the space I'm in and the collective consciousness of the group I'm around just doesn't awaken that energy at all. And it's quite a relief, actually. It, it's like it frees you for a lot of other things. Because for many people, their sexual preoccupations are very intense. They're spending a great deal of time thinking about who to partner with and who they're attracted to. And uh, there are an incredible number. Um, and it was interesting to me that um, in the United States, we have meditation centers. And in the meditation centers, the staff are back in the kitchen coupling and doing whatever they do. Uh, while all the meditators are uh, sworn to celibacy. In Burma and places, all the staff are very, very committed to the spiritual practice. When I was in the Western monasteries, I continued to feel those sexual vibrations in the environment. When I was in Burma, I didn't. Uh, and often in places in India, and it's interesting because even in India they have such a high birth rate, and in the East they have such a high birth rate, so they must be doing something somewhere. But it's interesting that there isn't the lust issue. There is reproduction, but there isn't that much um, preoccupation of the mind with these issues. And that has to do with the vibratory rate of the energies that you're around all the time. And so there is much to be said for... Uh, allowing yourself the opportunity to come into environments where that isn't such a major preoccupation. And you begin to feel, I'm, as now I'm beginning to feel with age, of course, uh, like new vistas are opening up to me because I don't have to spend all my time so obsessed with sexuality. So, um, see, the art is the art is to keep moving the energy into the higher and higher realms of compassion, of wisdom, of merging, of unity, and have them express less and less through subject-object. But you can't, if you try to do it by repressing it to force it up, it, it comes back, it boomerangs, it comes back and catches you. And you don't want to get caught in what I call the horny celibate syndrome, which is the busy not having sex that I talked about the other day. So what you are looking for is the way in which your mind, you focus your mind on these other realms, these spiritual realms, which then just allow you to re-perceive the universe. Like, for example, if I'm in a room, I can look around and I will find somebody that will arouse my prurient interest, that will arouse my sexual uh, awakening. But if I will just stay looking at that person and just quiet down for a moment, I will begin to see through that particular veil of objects and I will see another soul in there who is packaged in the way and that package is like, a, like with a geese or a duck's. With baby ducks, if you just show a silhouette of a mother duck, the baby duck will open its mouth for feeding. 
And it's built in. It's an instinctual response, just a silhouette of it on a piece of cardboard and the baby like this. And if you put a silhouette of a pig, it won't do that. It just... Uh, and so it's all built into the organism. And in the same way for all of us, it's built in too. We go, you know, or we get aroused when a certain pattern goes by. And so then you look at the soul that happens to be incarnated in that pattern. And you realize what a hell realm it must be to be somebody, for example, that in cultural terms is very beautiful. See, they have incredible power on the third chakra and second chakra realms, but nobody can get through that to see them behind it. And you find people that have tremendous symbolic power, either political power or sexual power, starving to death as souls. Can you hear the issue? Because nobody can meet them because everybody gets caught in the veil. And the art is to look and when a veil catches you, like somebody with vast power or vast attractiveness, physical attractiveness, and you start to respond to stay quiet long enough to allow yourself to get through that one to meet the being behind it. And the minute you do that, the whole game changes. The whole meaning of it changes. The compassion is reawakened. And then out of that compassion, you will do with that person what is compassionate, what is going to liberate both of you. And it could be sex and it could not be sex. It wouldn't matter at that point. You'd listen to hear what would be appropriate. So, is that dealing with the question? Yes. Uh, Ramdas, how can we make sex sacred? Doing it in church? <laughs> <laughs> I gotta watch this. I'm getting, I'm getting out of control here. <laughs> Things that come to mind in response to that question are um, the way in which you make something into a sacrament, the way in which you invest a ritual, the way in which you slow down the process so that lust is not lust, meaning the seeing another being as an object. Because anytime you do anything which separates beings, you have profaned the universe. You have, anytime you fail to see the unity that lies behind the diversity, you've just closed your awareness to God. And you've separated people and isolated them. And a lot of people who have sex end up feeling separate from their partners through the sexuality because they got involved in their own greed for a certain experience and they didn't slow down enough to be with their partner so that the sexual process increased the shared awareness of it. In a, a relationship, and this really is, uh, I guess we'll deal with this more in relationship stuff, so I won't get too much into it, but it's as if in, in any relationship between two people there's three, com three com points of the triangle. There's the two partners and then there's the shared awareness, which is the third thing. And you keep feeding into that third thing until it is really awareness, it's shared awareness that is playing with the energy that's created by these two polar, polar points 
interacting, the, the yin and yang, or the yab and yum, or the whichever way you want to call that, these two different energies working. And it's as if one awareness is working with these two energies. And the minute you get identified with one of the energies or the other, you polarize the situation and you create opposite and you create other. And then you have profaned the way in which it is the one delighting in itself. So for that process to happen, you have to slow down enough so that you take the initial desire system and use slow down like in tantric practices where you sit opposite your partner and you have enough control and discipline to take each new level of arousal and move it into the shared awareness that exists between the two of you so that the all of the energy is constantly feeding up the spine to bringing the two of you more into your heart and more into your wisdom and more into that shared awareness and the energy keeps feeding in and feeding in and feeding in until finally it is one awareness experiencing the transcendent moment um, of sexual union. And that's the sacred part of it. And the, the profanity is every time you settle for personal gratification using your partner. Is that dealing with the issue? Interesting one. You see, you can see how powerful those systems take and how common the culture is about seeing other beings as objects. I mean, that's what all of second chakra stuff is about, is all of pornography, all of it is object sex, which is terribly isolating to human beings and really demeaning to the human condition. I mean, it really makes it less. It makes it less. It profanes it. It cuts us off from God. And certainly something as exquisitely beautiful as sex shouldn't cut us off from God. Yeah. Questions? In a situation where there is quite strong sexual desire, there's enough heart openness to know that you don't feel it's appropriate to act on it. There's enough wisdom to know that you don't want to repress it, but there's not yet enough witness to be able to just sit back and say, ah, oh, so, what do you do with it? <laughs> burn, baby, burn. <laughs> hmm. This is not just a question about sexuality, it's a question about all desire systems, really. That there is a period where you're in between where you know enough to know that if you gratify the desire, you're creating more suffering, more karma, and yet you're not witness or not conscious enough to be able to let it go. And there's a long period for most of us where we just sit in that, it's like a hell realm or it's an in-between space, and you just sit there, you sit with it, and you sit with it often shared with another person, that you can't go forward and you can't go backwards, and you just sit with it. and in time, it transforms itself. It turns into something else. It's bittersweet. There's a grief reaction because you can't have what you want, because you know too much. See, there's a lot, there's an interesting stage in spiritual awakening where you wish you could go back to sleep again. <laughs> because you know too much to do the things that you wanted to do, but you don't know enough to not want them. 
and you're just caught in between those places. And that's a period, it's a long period, and you just sit with it. There's nothing to do about it, really. There's nothing to do about it. And the, uh, what's important is that you stay as close to the truth with, with your pr the, other, the other partner as you can. Because the minute you get into denial, then you're, you're locking it in for longer. But if you both agree that in this situation there's nothing we can do about it because we both see that it's not a compassionate act, and yet we both have the desire, we can sit with it. And in a way, we create a bond of awareness that is behind the desire systems. And that bond of awareness can get stronger in enough and strong enough until the two of us are sharing that awareness. And that, it's interesting that ultimately, you experience a quality so intimate that for us to have physical experience, we would have to come down into separateness in order to do that, to awaken that desire. And that's what I think that Ramana Maharshi was talking about when he was saying, what is it if two bodies rub together? Because at a certain point, you are so, when your awareness is not identified with your time, space, locus anymore, you keep merging into the people around you. And it's that in-being, in the dog story, the thing of Rilke. You become merged with that other being so much, you're already sharing the same space of awareness. It's as if the cells have already merged together. There's only one of us. And then to come back down into I desire you seems less. Do you hear that? And so when you are in a desire system that you're stuck in, as you cultivate that shared awareness more and more through truth, then the two of you can start to feel the intimacy. It's as if you get the... The predicament is that with sex is a good example. You get hooked on your method rather than on the object of the method, the goal of the method. The goal of the method is the shared intimacy where you feel complete, where you feel fulfilled, where you feel at peace. But one gets hooked on their method of getting there so that meditators end up being meditators and lusters end up being lusters instead of being realizing that what they want is that feeling of peace or at oneness or at homeness. And that can, when you can't find it through that route because it's not compassionate, then you move beyond it and you come into that you come to the goal without using the method and get free of being hooked to the method. Because we do get addicted to our methods. Those people that use psychedelics get hooked to psychedelics. The people that use meditation get hooked to meditation. The people that use sex get hooked to sex. And actually, they're all going to the same place. Yes. Um, I hear what you're saying, but you also said earlier that there is a place where you're in that shared awareness but can enjoy the play of being two people involved in a sexual relationship. How does that relate to what you were just saying about coming back down into division? Well, uh, once you and I share the awareness together, then we hear, we hear the Tao, we hear the way of things in the universe. And in that way of things, you and I will hear the way in which we can dance together. 
the dance together may be we'll be colleagues in a business venture. It may be we'll be lovers. It may be we'll be friends. It may be we will be associates in some way or other. It may be we, we are mother and child or father and son or something, father and daughter. We just keep hearing what is appropriate that doesn't create waves, that doesn't create suffering in the system. Right? And then you come down and play as two. It becomes, then it's when it comes back into the game or the dance or the play. When you're already in love, and it can happen, it's very far out how it can happen. I've talked about this, I think, last year, but um, in my role in the SAVA Foundation, at one point as a chairman of the board, uh, which I was, we have a rotating chairmanship, I found myself representing SAVA in uh, Nepal, where we do a lot of blindness surgery, and we build clinics, and we're building a hospital now. And... Uh, train people and so on, and I found myself meeting with the Minister of Health as I was the chairman of the board of a foundation from America, and he, was the ch he represents the king of Nepal. And we came together, and I wore my tie and my blue blazer, and I was Dr. Das, and, and uh, uh, we met, and it, we had tea, and I had my entourage, and he had his entourage, and I needed him to release, relax some of the bureaucracy of the structure so that we could train a category of people called ophthalmic assistants that would help the surgeons to relieve the caseload. And he had to give up certain rules that the government had, which was trying to make it legitimized in the international medical community. I mean, there was a little political structure going on here. And what he wanted from me, of course, was more money. And an American foundation. And uh, we all understood, and we came together each with our wish list. And I was a little nervous because I was um, having to be straight, which I hadn't been for years. I mean, I was having to be representing the team back home, and I couldn't give away the store. And uh, I was a little nervous that I could play tight enough in this situation. And um, I was, you know, doing my beads nervously. And trying to remember Ram, and um, we were about to start the bargaining, and I was caught in being the chairman of the board, I mean, and playing my role properly. I was caught in my role. I wasn't playing it. I was caught in it. And at that moment, I happened to look into his eyes, which you, because when you're in, caught in a role, you don't look into people's eyes, because you're busy being somebody. And I just happened to look into his eyes, and there he was sitting there looking at me, and our eyes held for a moment, and that was just long enough for me to realize that he was right here. He wasn't caught. I mean, he was an Easterner. He knew much more than I did. And he freed me at that moment. And we met. We suddenly just fell into each other's eyes. Just that moment, we fell into love, really. And then we recognize the oneness of, it's like two souls. Well, what will we do today? Well, I'll tell you what. I'll be the minister of health. Okay. <laughs> well, I'll be the chairman of the board. And suddenly, we were just playing these games out. And then we fought fiercely. It was like Monopoly. And I'll trade you Park Avenue for the B&O Railroad. And, and we got into this bargaining. But the more we bargained, it was like making love. The more intimate we got. And the... Oneness allowed us to play our game, not sloppily, but very well, but we didn't get caught in the game, so we weren't opponents. We were collaborating in our competition, okay? And so the competition kept bringing us closer and closer together.
that's the, the way in which it worked. Questions? Yes. He's asking uh, in those systems uh, where they work with sexual energies in terms of lust and all to arouse that stuff to examine it and work with it. I think that it takes somebody who is extremely conscious and extremely um, clear themselves about it to play with those energies without getting lost in it. And I think most people that say they're doing Tantra are grossly rationalizing in a way to justify their lust. I think that there's a tremendous amount of fraudulence in that game. I think there are very few people that are able to do sexual tantra because it takes absolute one-pointedness of mind and where you start from up here and then you delve down here. You don't start from here. You hear that? So that I would say that, uh, I would say that about, in my experience, about 80% of what I hear of people talking about tantra and working with sexual energies is gross rationalization and that a very few people I've ever met are able to do that thing successfully. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.